I'm very glad that I know my family history quite well and I know and I have all these recipes and I definitely now feel like cooking a lot of my grandmother's food. Now that I'm in Australia, I definitely feel like I'm cooking Russian food, I'm eating sort of the Russian way. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Global events in recent years have left us feeling at times like we're living on a knife's edge. In Australia, bushfires, pandemic, floods, concerns over climate change, further afield conflict and war, such as that in the Ukraine and Russia. Relying on media and watching from afar is very different to being on the ground. Anna Haraziva is a Russian food writer and educator and author of the Soviet Diet Cookbook. Anna, how are you? Uh, I'm all right, thanks. <laughs> how are you? I'm good. It's been a very challenging um, period for, for many people, but uh, you recently um, left Russia and, and came to Australia. Tell us about the circumstances uh, that you had that made you make that decision. Yeah, so uh, before the war, before the 24th of February, I was living a normal life, renovating um, our new apartment, getting ready to move into it, getting ready to start a new writing project with a Russian magazine. And um, and then Putin invaded Ukraine. Uh, I went to protest on the 24th, which was the first day. Afterwards, I um, gave an interview to the ABC and said something live um, that I shouldn't have said. I was kind of in shock from the protest and from the very fact that the war had started and said something that I shouldn't have said. And um, later on, you know, I continued posting on social media, um, speaking up against the war. And at some point, you know, once they've introduced the new laws, of um, treason, you know, if you show any support for Ukraine or there's this law of fake news, which which is basically if you share any information about what's happening in Ukraine, you're spreading fake news and that's punishable up to 15 years in jail. Treason is 12 to 20 years in jail. And, um, and they started of introducing martial law, which could mean um, closing of the borders and you know, I just panicked basically and uh, said to my husband, let's get flights for tomorrow. And we packed within 24 hours. How did you feel at, at that time, given that you were sort of living your life normally and the, the big upheaval and having to get out? What, what was the feeling generally and how did you feel as well? Oh, it was awful. It was it was really, really bad. Um, all of my friends, oh, everyone I know, my family and friends from the 24th, felt this deep feeling of grief and shame. You know, my mom described it as gory, which in Russian is both sort of um, something horrible happening and grief. And, uh, and she described Russia's invasion as a gory. And it's exactly how I felt and exactly how many people felt. We just, you know, we couldn't even function. You know, we were all completely devastated, panicking, not sleeping at night, you know, just constantly checking the news. So it was just feeling 
awful for what's happening in Ukraine and feeling scared for ourselves, for our physical safety, you know, being in Russia and trying to figure out what to do, you know, where to go. And so it's, my life is very much now divided into before the war and now. Wow. What's it like um, watching it from afar? There'd be friends and family that you know that are there and you're here and um, seeing the media coverage here and connections that you have there. What's it like compared to when you were there and watching from afar? Honestly, I, I mean, I, I read all the people who left for, say, Georgia, Armenia, Turkey, places where there are many people who fled Russia and how united they all are and how they're all together. And I feel so jealous, you know, that, um, they've got each other, that they're all still in the same sort of, not, I don't know if bubble is the right word, but they're going through the same things, whereas I'm far away from it. And, I mean, that's hard for me, being far, but at the same time I realize it's the safest place I can be and I'm very lucky that I can work here. And, I mean, I'm yet to find a job, but... I can work here, you know, and I can be here and we've got family support and amazing friends. But mentally, I'm kind of still there. You're one of the most influential food communicators in Russia. Taking it back to when you were young, what sort of role did food play for you and your family? Well, for me, I know I was I was raised by my mom and my grandmother and my mom worked full time uh, and she's not really a food person. So I grew up on my grandmother's food and it's been hugely important to me. And her attitude to food, like she was, she died one year ago, um, but she was just such a foodie. She was obsessed with food, loved it, you know, could talk about it for hours. <laughs> we would sometimes just sit down with a cup of tea in the evening, um, having already eaten everything, you know, there was to eat that day and just talk about cooking something, you know, and she'd be like, oh, okay, so you chop up the onions and then you saute them and what, what do you add? And, you know, she just loved talking about it, loved cooking it. And it was very much her way of expressing her love for us because no, I mean the Soviet upbringing and I don't know if it's partly Jewish, partly Soviet. I mean, in my family, we don't really express our feelings very much. Um, So for her, you know, she, she, she said, I love you. I remember distinctly once that she said it and I, and it was something that I felt like she really wanted to say. And it was sweet, but kind of awkward as well. Um, but food was definitely her way of showing love. Do you have any um, stories of feasts or dishes that you remember from, from that time? Yeah. I mean, she always made when I was little, um, well, not just when I was little, basically my whole life for any kind of, for any celebration, she would make, Pirashki, which are these stuffed pies with either a, a meat filling or um, potato, egg and onion, different uh, cabbage, different fillings. And they were just so delicious. I, I mean, I love them. I still love them. And But they take obviously quite a long time to prepare. And also you have to <laughs> imagine that it's a tiny kitchen, four square meters. And to make fill, no pies, yeast dough, 
you need lots of room for to make all the fillings, to lay them out, to you know make the pirashki themselves, you know, to as- assemble them. And so to do it in a tiny kitchen was quite an ordeal, but she loved doing it and she'd always make them for special occasions. And when she died, I made them for her wake. And that was kind of a, an important thing for me to make her dish. And I still make her dishes. Tell us about what lured you to a career in, in food. It was um, probably quite unusual in the sense that um, I was interested in foreign languages. My degree is in history and Jewish studies. Um, I studied Hebrew and later retrained as a teacher of English as a foreign language. And um, I, at, when I was teaching, I used to see lots of people who had the real psychological barrier to speaking. Um, I had lots of students who would know all the grammar back to front, you know, they'd studied all the textbooks, but they had the real fear of actual communication. And that's also Soviet approach to education as well. You know, just study the textbook and, and that's it. Um, and I, and I thought, okay, what can I do to, um, give these people a chance to practice English or another language in the, in the informal environment? And I thought, oh, well, what about food? You know, that's kind of a great connector and I could get people together. We could cook together. It could be like a cooking, class, you know, cooking school situation. And um, so that's what I did. But the funny thing is I couldn't cook at all when I started. (laughs) So I, you know, and I never intended to actually teach the cooking part. I, you know, I always thought that I would get somebody else on board. But of course, in the process, that was when I learned, you know, when I organized and hosted a bunch of cooking classes, that's when I learned to cook, and and that's when I asked my grandmother to explain her recipes to me, and and I and I wrote them all down, and I and I started cooking them. So it's kind of a non-linear <laughs> story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know uh, R- Russian food is very different depending where you are in in um, different areas, but tell us a little bit about Russian food from your perspective. Um, yeah, so my food, actually, the, the food that I grew up in, with is sort of Russian, Ukrainian, Jewish, which is also a little bit different. Um, but to me, you know, Russian food, there's a lot of fermentation, you know, a lot of seasonal eating. So in the summer, it's lots of salads, it's cold soups, you know, cold beetroot soup. I have a recipe from my great great grandmother for a delicious cold beetroot soup. It's so good, and a cold cucumber soup with kvass. You probably know what kvass is. This fermented um, rye bread drink, uh, and then in summer you prepare for winter as well. So that so you ferment cabbage, cucumber, tomatoes, apples, all sorts of things. And uh, there's lots of soups. Soup is quintessential. Uh, you can't bring up a child without feeding him or her f- soup every day. <laughs> um, yeah, and a lot of the food is quite labor-intensive, like the pirashki that I mentioned, or pilmeni dumplings, or vareniki, which are called pierogi in, in the U.S. Um, 
but but that's kind of part of the fun of it you know you make them with a bunch of people you freeze them and i don't know it's really it's really meaningful as well as a food communicator you open to all sorts of experiences of your career in in food are there any real highlights or experiences that you had that you can tell us about mm, yeah that's interesting um well i really enjoyed hosting a a, a small a launch for a small party for my book uh, and it was after my grandmother already died and the book focuses largely on her stories. And it was kind of, I don't know, interesting uh, that the book arrived on her birthday. Um, yeah, I got the first batch um, and I was supposed to get them much earlier and I didn't even think that it was, you know, kind of close to her birthday. Well, not really close because the books were late. And it was on her birthday and you know, my mom had come over for lunch and we sat down to lunch and the books arrived and it was quite amazing. You know, that feeling of connection, you know, the book is all about her and here it is on her birthday, just while my mom was there as well at lunchtime, you know, it's a very appropriate for Babushka, you know, to come up for lunch. Um, and, and then the, and, yeah, and the mom and I made a bunch of her, of uh, Granny's uh, recipes for the book launch, and and that was special as well because you know my mom normally doesn't really cook and we don't cook often together you know but that was a really nice moment and she made really delicious stuffed capsicums uh, that she learned from my grandmother from her mom and then people read out bits from the book. You know, uh, quotes from my grandmother. So that was really nice. Well, tell us a bit about the book, The Soviet Diet Cookbook. Um, how, did, how did the idea for it come about and, your, um, and you being on board to, to write it? So um, the idea came from an American editor, Lara McCoy, who is a friend now as well. Um, she was working for Russia Beyond the Headlines in Moscow and I was hosting my cooking classes. Uh, by then I, I was doing a lot of kids cooking classes and she came to one, actually she came to a fundraiser I organized with her two kids. And then she got me into writing actually, because um, she, she came to me after a couple of cooking classes and said, would you mind um, writing a piece about pirashki and vareniki or two pieces about pirashki and vareniki um, and I said, well, I don't write. I said, I can't write at all. I'm terrible at it, but I have the recipes, you know, I said, so I have my grandmother's recipes and, you know, I can try and write something up for you. And she said, look, just don't stress, just write whatever you feel like writing. Um, you know, just whatever you feel like saying. And I did, and turned out, you know, I didn't do too badly and the pieces were quite popular and she said well how do you feel about doing a project for 12 months where you would cook from the book of tasty and healthy food which is this iconic soviet cookbook and describe your experience and i said okay why not um and i my idea was getting my grandmother on board because i felt like if 
if I was just describing my own experiences of cooking from that book, I would only be able to go so far. You know, I would talk about the utensils and the kitchen size and the availability of ingredients, but I felt like it wouldn't be that sort of deep. Whereas with my grandmother's stories, you know, it was, it became really interesting because she had a lot of stories to share and, and she was very funny and she hated the Soviet Union, uh, well, the government. And so someone described it as a subversive cookbook. <laughs> and yeah, it definitely is. Do you have any, uh, can you share one of the stories that she shares in the book or, um, or sort of paint a picture of, of, you know, what it was like for her? Uh, so, well, one thing, for example, is uh, when you know that a lot of books were prohibited, you know, under the Soviet regime, but people still reprinted them themselves at home. So you would get a copy. Some people were actually copying them and and, and distributing them, uh, but others would just read them, and you would might get it for one night, uh, just this hand type copy. You might get it for one night and then you have to give it to the next person. And the code word for this, what's called samizdat, which means self-published. Um, the code word for samizdat books was buckwheat. And so you would call your friend and say, okay, I've eaten the buckwheat and, and now I can give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> and my grandmother still has, uh, well, in her apartment, you know, there's still some of those books hand typed i mean there are other stories as well it's scarcity uh, food scarcity was a, was a problem back in the soviet times can you do you have any stories of what it was actually like compared to sort of these these recipes and having access to ingredients yeah absolutely um so yeah as you said as you said scarce, scarcity was definitely a big part of soviet life and the cookbook is part cookbook, part propaganda machine, you know, tool, of course, you know, because it's this big book with lots of beautiful photos. And I would encourage everyone to Google it and, and look at the photos, the images, because, you know, they're just beautiful, lots of fruit, wine, champagne, you know, just this incredible, lavish spread which of course was a complete um, pipe dream, you know, for anyone in the Soviet Union. It was so far from reality. I mean, there are kids, there are people who've described in their memoirs that they used to look at this book and just see it as some sort of a made up thing, you know, just some sort of a dream thing, you know, that could never be achieved. And so of course, a lot of the recipes call for ingredients that were completely impossible to find. Uh, and my grandmother would laugh at it and say, yeah, right, you know, propaganda. Uh, you know, we, we never ate that, uh, like real crab or something like that, you know, pineapples or some ridiculous ingredients, you know. Um, but there are also recipes that were just sort of normal, you know, things that people actually made like soups and kasha, you know, different types of porridge and grains and things like that. So funnily enough, uh, there are quite a few recipes from that book that my grandmother used. And there are some that I use as well. But a lot of them are completely ridiculous. 
tell us about the process. What, what sort of impact did it have on you writing this book and connecting with your grandmother? Did it, did it bring back sort of childhood memories for you? Yeah, it was, it was actually hugely important for me because, I mean, I'd always heard some stories from her about the Soviet Union and, and things like that, but I never asked her in detail uh, about it. And, and then when I was writing the book, she was sharing stories that I'd never heard. And it made me think about Russia's past, you know, my own past, my family history uh, in a completely different way. You know, now I'm obsessed with family history and I'm trying to encourage other Russians to study their past as well. Um, and that's largely thanks to the book, you know, because it's incredible what you learn when you sit down with an older relative and actually ask questions and listen and write them down and and reflect on them and come back with more questions. Yeah, so it was definitely very interesting for me. And another thing was just our relationship as well. Um, I, I, I write in the book about my relationship with her, how she laughed at some of my failures and with, but in a good way, you know, the Jewish grandmother kind of way. <laughs> um, so it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. There's, there's over a thousand recipes in the book. What was it like for you um, working on those recipes, given that, you know, you started your career with an inability to cook? Yeah. Um, I think it was actually kind of good from the perspective of an average reader uh, that I wasn't an amazing cook when I was writing it because I uh, had all the same struggles that an average person would have, you know, with all the recipes and ingredients and stuff. And um, the thing about this book is that the recipes aren't very detailed. Um, so a lot of it is quite vague, like um, baking a hot oven until ready, you know. Uh and, you know, my grandmother would come in, like, with sour cabbage, for instance. I can make it now, but I couldn't back then. I Well, I followed the book's directions. And my grandmother said, look, let me explain to you how to make it properly. You know, don't just follow the book's recipe. And I said, it's an experiment. I have to just follow the recipe and see whether it will work. And so she laughed at me, and I failed miserably. And so she laughed again, and she was like, okay, just now write down my own recipe and I did, but I felt that to keep the experiment real, I had to just follow the book's recipes and which is why a lot of the recipes didn't work out so great. Um, and the good news is now I can make sour cabbage and I do, and actually definitely want to do it here as well. Once I have my own kitchen. <laughs> What sort of impact has um, releasing this book had on you and, and your career? Um, it's It's been important for me on a personal level as much as anything, you know, of, um, just not being shy to show my work because um, I've always been very shy about you know, just sharing what I my, myself, you know, my own work. When I was organizing cooking classes, it wasn't, me, I wasn't promoting myself. It was somebody else, you know, the chefs that were running it for me and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, other businesses, well, I had one other business. It was also not focused on me so much. Whereas when you publish a book, it's very much about you. 
And so that's been an important step for me to learn to be able to say, no, here I am, here's my work. Um, yeah, and these issues are very much sort of Soviet as well. You know, when you, we were always taught not to appear too proud of yourself, you know, to always to be quiet and to um, lay low and these kinds of things. Um, and I mean, this is part of the heartbreak for me um, is that all the things that we were working towards in the last 30 years were just have just been destroyed now by Putin. And we just went back in time massively. Um, so that, sorry, it's not really about the book, but that's, that's what's been on my mind. <laughs> what's, what sort of response has, the, um, has there been to the book in Russia? Uh, well, because it's in English, um, most of the response has been from people overseas and from Russians overseas as well. Um, so there's quite a few Russian, uh, Russian Americans, for instance, uh, reading it, or people with Russian heritage um, reading it in in the U.S. or in in the U.K. or Australia, and um, they find it very interesting because it's very personal and it's kind of family history and food as well. So it helps them understand. I think what well, that's the feedback I got is that it helps them understand the, where they came from. You know, for the Russians who were maybe born in the U.S. or left when they were little. And for the Russians who live overseas, they said, no, I'll buy it for my husband so that he understands where I come from better, you know? Leading up to um, February when um, when the war started, tell, tell us about that period of time prior to that compared to the stories that your grandmother was telling. How, how, how much change was there in that 30-year period? Oh, there was a lot of change. Um, to show one example, not long before the war started, I came home and my husband said to me, guess what you can now order on Azon, which is like a Russian Amazon. And I said, um, Vegemite? And he said, yes, because he was so excited, but he's Australian. And I went, what? That's unreal. You can now order, well, you could uh, order Vegemite and have it delivered to your doorstep within 24 hours. You know, that's the level of <laughs> service, you know, um, that Moscow got to before the war. You know, you could, you could get any ingredient you want. You know, you could get anything delivered. Restaurant service was great. Uh, lots of, lots of ser uh, cafes, restaurants. Um, everyone was trying to do something interesting eco-friendly, local, you know, and it was really good. It was, it was a great place to live. And I would, I would always, almost always order food online, you know, through this app and 20 minutes later it would be at my doorstep. And it was just so easy and it was a great place to live, which is why it's so hard to realize that that's over. What are, what are your thoughts about that at the moment? Obviously, you you um, left because of the concerns and um, and what was going on. How do you feel about the state of Russia moving forward and and your connection there too? Well, sadly, I would describe it as moving backwards. You know, for Russia at the moment, um, 
now all the progress that we saw has pretty much been undone now. And, um, you know, for me, I don't see myself going back until, until there is regime change. And honestly, it's so weird, so weird for me because the things that my grandmother has lived through uh, and my great-grandmother and, and her parents, I thought it was a thing of the past. I thought I was living this advanced new life completely different to theirs, and I was studying their lives to see the impact that it's had on me. But now I've been thrown back into that past, and it's such a weird feeling, to say the least. So, I mean, I've said it to my friends, and they've said the same thing to me, that I feel like I'm inside the Soviet memoir. Uh, yeah, so, um, and I honestly don't know when I'll be able to go back. Um, I have no idea. I, I want to acquire skills here. Um, that will help me rebuild Russia, hopefully one day, you know. Um, so, I don't know. I need to figure out a short-term plan. But as far as a long-term plan is concerned, uh, I don't think I can do much for now. You mentioned that um, it feels like Russia's going backwards, but your your book was a, a look back um, at a time that was uh, much better for life for you in, in Russia. What, what sort of positive impact did that connection that you had through food have on you? Well, I mean, one thing is I'm very glad that I know my family history quite well and I know and I have all these recipes and I definitely now feel like, cooking a lot of my grandmother's food. And uh, I, you know, in Moscow, I didn't cook so much Russian food, you know, because it's kind of there anyway. You don't need to necessarily cook it so much. But now, now that I'm in Australia, I definitely feel like I'm cooking Russian food, um, eating sort of the Russian way, you know, like I want to like, you know, like I said about sour cabbage, I want to make sour cabbage. I want to have my own um, kombucha, which we, we call it tea mushroom in Russia. I, I grew up with it. You know, it, there was always a big jar of it on the windowsill. And I'd, had some every, I'd have some every morning. And I want to I have one here as well and you know, make Russian salads, make Russian pirashki and all of that. I think that will, it sort of helps to um, feel that connection to Russia still. Well, Anna, it's been an absolute honor to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a snippet of your story um, and look forward to hearing your voice in the Australian uh, food media as well. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.